the Bund wasn't just about wages. You know, when the war broke out in 39, the Bund was 42 years old. By that time, they had established a system of schools, libraries, <laughs> theater, sports organizations, and political, you know, it was an all-encompassing view that the society wasn't just about getting a fair wage or eight hours a day. It was definitely about that. Yeah. But it was also about how you led your life. Socialism, a podcast hosted by the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, specifically Three Woods Religion and Socialism Working Group. I'm Sarah New, and together with my producer, Devin Brisky, we conduct deep dive interviews with religious activists and thinkers on radical politics and faith. So today is the 76th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which started on April 19th when the Warsaw Ghetto and Poland resisted Nazi efforts to transport the remaining Jewish ghetto population to concentration camps. So it's notable because it's the, I think, the single largest revolt by Jews during World War II. And specifically for our podcast, it's notable because it was mostly organized by the Bund, um, which is a sec- which was and is a secular Jewish socialist movement and organization. So one of the heroes of the uprising was Mikhail Klepfitz, who was a chemical engineer, a Bundist, and who directed the underground production of explosives for the Jewish resistance. So he died on the second day of the uprising, but before that he managed to get his wife and daughter safely smuggled out of the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, his daughter is now actually quite noteworthy in her own right. She's a famous essayist, poet, academic, activist. Her name is Arena Klepfitz. And she's known for her work, particularly in lesbian, feminist, and Jewish spaces, as well as anti-occupation Israeli um, politics. She's also Yiddishist and has translated many Yiddish poets. And she co-founded the Jewish Women's Committee to end the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. So we wanted to get this recording out as soon as possible to time it with the anniversary of the uprising. And so we didn't have time to edit this audio file really at all. So just give you a heads up. The quality is lower than normal. But I think hopefully the the heartwarming warmth and personal uh, stories and reflections that Irina shares with Envy will hopefully more than make up for it. She has such a wonderfully casual and inviting way of talking. Um, just so you know, this is part one of part two. The next episode will come out is with Daniel Sawyer, professor of history at Fordham University, who will provide a more academic and historical perspective. So I met both Irina and Daniel through the introduction of Rabbi Sue Oren, um, teacher whose intro to Judaism class I took over the fall and spring in Brooklyn, New York City. And one day during class, she passed out a small little book, a booklet, kind of calendar, that cataloged a chronology of the Jewish labor boom from 1897 to 2017. So I got the book, as I told Rabbi Oren, I would love to interview the editors of this book, and she kindly connected me to Irina and Daniel. And so they provide different perspectives on the same history, including actually very different perspectives in Israel. And so I think you'll find this two-part series quite interesting. But first, let's begin with Irina. Do you want to maybe just start by stating your first last name and a little bit what you do and why you do what you do? Well, I'm doing less than... <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, my name is Irina Klutfish. Um 
I just retired a year ago from teaching at Barnard. I was an adjunct teaching Jewish women's studies at Barnard. Taught two courses a year for 22 years hmm. on um, various topics related to Jewish women, um, both mainly literature, but also I did a course on women in Israel, and I did a general course on Jewish women, kind of an introduction. And um, so that was, you know, 20, that was the last 22 years, which I did primarily, um, and got me rooted. I mean, I was a kind of trained, if you want to call it academic, I have a PhD in Victorian literature, hmm. um, and did my dissertation on George Eliot at the University of Chicago. And, um, and I came back to New York and taught at LIU for about four years. And then I was a budgetary cut when, this is how history affects you, when City College became open enrollment, LIU lost a lot of their students hmm. and they had to cut back on their faculty. So they started cutting on tenured. And I was sort of left sort of loose, sort of. I consider my, my general life kind of began at that point because I came out at that point, which was sort of at the beginning of my 30s. What time period? This is 1973-74. I should say I'm not American-born. I was born in Poland during the war, and I came here when I was eight with a three-year stint in Sweden before we got here. Um, And I say that because that began to play a more... I mean, it was obviously privately a really important part of my background that I had, you know, that I lived with. Um, but it became sort of much more a public thing after I sort of came out and started becoming active and writing. I had always, I for probably beginning in my late teens, I was interested in becoming a writer and a poet. I wasn't so interested in academia. I sort of did that as a, ironically, as a fallback, and it, <laughs> it fell way back. <laughs> it didn't become, because I never held another full-time teaching job after, after LIU. So um, when I became more active, I was very, very lucky. I lucked in, I mean, I, I feel like it was a difficult time to come out. The 70s were really, really hard. Mm, yeah. But what was really great was that I was in New York and there was so much happening in terms of the movement in various places. I mean, there were places to go and there were women's bookstores beginning. And there was just an enormous amount of activity. So however hard it was, there was also an enormous amount of places, resources, and people. And so I sort of almost started like another life. Um, and I lucked out by accidentally meeting people who knew Audre Lorde hmm. and Adrian Rich and Blanche Cook. I don't know if you, Blanche Cook, she wrote the biography of Eleanor Roosevelt, became very, very... Oh, wow. And of course, nobody. I mean, Adrian and and, and Audrey Lord were already. Well, Adrian was quite famous, but Audrey Lord was becoming famous, and Blanche Cook wasn't famous yet. Um, but it was a lot of people that became. You know, there was sort of it was a nucleus. So I bumped into these people. I was very, very lucky in that way, and I got support for my writing from them and. Um, and I became active. I mean, it was, um, I come from this very, my parents, it's been my father really, more than my mother, 
was very politically active um, in Poland um, through the Jewish Labor Board. And his parents were Bundists, and, um, which meant that they were socialists. His father came from a Hasidic family, and he, very classic story. Hmm. You know, like in his late teens, he broke with the family, he found socialism. And um, he was a lifelong, he was basically a lifelong Bundist. And he married someone who was also my can grandmother. You, can you explain a little bit why, for maybe readers who are less familiar, why following socialism meant like breaking from his family? Well, the Hasid, he broke, first of all, he broke with the religion. I mean, he was, they, they were, they were Hasidic, which meant that they were really orthodox. And apparently it was a quite prominent family in, in, in Warsaw. My great-grandfather married twice, and he had something like, I don't know, 18 children, like nine with each wife or something. <laughs> and um, he, to break meant that he stopped being observant. Mm -hmm. That was automatic. Um, and um, he started thinking in, terms, in class terms, which was the socialism part of it. But he was also cultural because he was also, um, the Bund promoted Yiddish and right. Yiddish culture. And he, he was a Yiddish teacher. He became a Yiddish teacher in secular schools, Yiddish secular schools. And as I understand it, he totally broke with the family. Hmm. Um, and that was not uncommon. I mean, it, of Bundes, not necessarily. Right. But that was a really common story of um, people kind of breaking out. Um, and my grandmother, I don't really know about her. I know that she, her mother lived with them for a long time when my father was growing up, and they were, uh, she was still kind of observant, I believe. I don't know that much about it, Miriam. Um, and then my father met my mother. Now, my mother came from a family of six children. She was the fifth. And they were sort of politically evenly split. They were, two of them were communists, two of them, um, were Zionists, and two of them were kind of socialists. I don't think they were necessarily Bundist. My mother was one of the Zionists, and so yeah. she switched her politics when she met my father. Oh, interesting, <laughs> yeah. And, um, but he was deep into it, and she became active in it as well, but he was more kind of proactive, in the, active in the movement. He was very into sports, and they had a, there was a sports organization, and he sort of that so that was sort of and so after the war um, when we came here we lived in a sort of enclave of Holocaust survivors up in the Bronx and they amalgamated it was these union organized buildings yeah well I want to give you a chance to eat the orange that you picked up but I also recall you very correctly, your father also participated in the Warsaw Uprising. Yes, okay. yes, he was he was on the um, he was involved in the the ZOB, which was the resistance organization in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and um, he was involved with the Bund was probably the only Jewish organization that had really some significant ties with non-Jewish socialists. Right. And so that was a very important connection during mm -hmm. the war in terms of trying to get weapons and stuff like that. I see. And so he was he facilitated in some of that. He was involved in smuggling weapons in. He had also been going to engineering school, so he had some kind of K 
chemistry background, and he ended up getting a formula for making Molotov cocktails. And so um, he, they, he sort of established little factories before the uprising for these Molotov cocktails. Um, and the uprising happened in 43. I was already, at that point, I was in an orphanage, a Catholic orphanage. My mother was, had phony Aryan papers, you know, that she was Polish. Well, she was always Polish, but that she was a Christian, a Catholic Polish, um, Polish Catholic. And, um, and the uprising took place in 43, in April 19th, just right now. I mean, Friday is the anniversary. Oh, wow. Yeah. And in fact, Friday is sort of unusual because the uprising happened on Passover. Really interesting. And this year it actually falls on Passover. So it's sort <laughs> wow. of, we got to get this episode out. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's, you know, we have this meeting at, on, on 83rd Street. It's called the Stein, which is, means the stone. And there's a placard. I'll give you the book here. This is the book from last year. It was the 75th anniversary. You oh, can wow. have that. Oh, thank you. Um, and see if you look on the back cover, that's mm-hmm. the stone. On, it's on 83rd Street and Riverside Park. Oh, really? I walk so past that all the time. Yeah, we meet there. At, we usually meet at three, but this year we're meeting at one because everybody has to run home to for their seders. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, so that's and he was killed. He was the uprising happened on the 19th, and he was killed um, the next day, um, the 20th. It's his anniversary. Which also happens to be Hitler's birthday, which is very <laughs> bizarre. But so this whole week um, is very weird for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, my mother, you know, she survived by herself. She got me out of the orphanage, and we survived and went to Sweden, and then we came here, and we were supported very much by the Jewish labor bonds, by Bundes, and um, at the beginning, and I grew up in the Bronx. So I mean, that's sort of the background, and at the same time. I'm entering sort of the, the lesbian feminist movement, and I'm sort of in the left part of it, whatever that means. <laughs> and, and of course, Israel comes up, and of course, and the Bund was totally anti-Zionist between the war, strongly anti-Zionist. They believed in something called Da'ekai. Da in Yiddish means here, and it's very difficult to, you know, the only way to translate Da'ekai is to say hereness. Mm. And it just sort of, it meant that Jews, it affirmed that Jews could be anywhere and could be Jews and were citizens of whatever country. And during the interwar period, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Poland and stuff, but the Bundes were very committed to Poland. Mm. They didn't want to go anywhere. They wanted, their roots were there. They'd been in Poland for hundreds of years. Um, and so there, there was a lot of tension between the Zionists and the Bundes. Um, some of it played out actually during the war and resistance and stuff. Um, politics always manages to yeah. <laughs> sort of make things sometimes difficult. But anyway, um, so when I became active, suddenly everybody was asking me what my position was about Israel, and mm-hmm. I really didn't. I, I wasn't really anti-Zionist, but I wasn't Zionist either, and and I knew I wasn't Zionist. Um, but I also didn't know very much because I hadn't paid very much attention. And then I started, um, I st- just started thinking much more about my background in a kind of more mm. reflective way. I'd sort of taken it all for granted in some ways. 
I've gone to Yiddish schools, but I got a PhD in Victorian literature. I mean, it was, um, and people started, I think to some degree, it was, it was both me, I mean, the feminist movement, the second wave, really forced women to start looking where they came from and to say, well, is this, you know, what kind of community? I love my background, but, you know, what was it like, really? And, um, and some people, I think, you know, there's a, it's very uncomfortable. I don't know whether it still persists, but at the time in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, there was this constant struggle about Jewish authenticity. Who is the authentic Jew? Like, is the authentic Jew the Zionist? Is the authentic Jew? Are you really an authentic Jew if you're a survivor of the Holocaust? So especially with Ashkenazi Jews, I mean, these Ashkenazi women were sort of looking at me as sort of this authentic thing that came out of Europe. <laughs> and the new Yiddish and, you know... A specimen from the museum. <laughs> right, exactly. And so I was, it was sort of forced upon me. And, you hmm. know, in, a, in some ways, and I was very... I wasn't... I mean, I had some queasiness about it, but it did force me to, like, think about my background much more, to think about the bond think about Israel and think about Yiddish. Um, and I had had a really fairly good Yiddish education, but I didn't know a single Yiddish woman writer. Hmm. They were all men. I mean, I, and people said, well, who were the women? Where were the women? And, you know, and I didn't, I didn't know. So I had to do my own research. I mean, in order to be able to sort of, and the difference between me and them was that I could read Yiddish and they couldn't. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I just started doing both things. I mean, I was, and I was sort of dealing with homophobia in the Jewish community, too. Wow. So, um, it was sort of a double-edged sword in some ways, but, and there was a lot of, I mean, there was a lot of tension around it, and I don't think the Jewish community was any different than any other community. I think it was just as homophobic, or not as, I mean, it wasn't better, I don't think. Hmm. Um, it was a struggle. Did it have a particular nuance of flavor given like the position of Jews in America or? I don't know. I mean, I'm, when I say the Jewish community, well, there's the largest, I mean, the first community is always the one that you're raised in. And it was very fearful and it was very difficult for my mother. Hmm. My mother was very upset about it. And it took her a long time to really come to terms with it. I mean, t I'm talking about years. Um, but she was also funny because I was the first one from all of those people that came out. I was often the first one for everything because <laughs> I was like the, almost the only one because they were everybody else was quite a bit younger than me. They were born after the war, so they were like seven or eight years younger than me. So like I was the first one to get a PhD. This was like this enormous thing yeah. in that community. But I was the first one to come out or the only one to come out. But then it started, you know, with parents somebody would go to my mother for advice because they just found out that <laughs> one of their kids was gay and what could she tell them? So she sort of became like, I think in some ways she sort of enjoyed that role of, like she would give them advice. I don't know what advice she'd give them. She didn't get along that well with me about it. So, um, but, you know, people calmed down, but it took years and, you know, it took a long time and, you know, one of my mother's, a close friend of my mother, her daughter was gay. She's, She's about 10 years younger than me. She and her partner adopted a 
a girl from Guatemala. She's now the girl's now sixteen. <laughs> you know, it's things change, but they change kind of slowly. Hmm. So, um, so there were a lot of like fronts to fight about. I mean, it was we're fighting, trying to make Yiddish culture more kind of bringing in the women that were there but just were totally erased how, how did you start to develop your like intentionally develop a political framework or lens well I think I always had I mean I you know unlike somebody like Danny for example um, who's much younger than I am oh. that was oh no huh? um Somebody like Danny came to Buddhism through books, basically. I mean, sort of, it was like an intellectual awakening. Mm-hmm. So, I came to Buddhism by just listening to my mother's friends. I mean, it was hey. sort of almost osmosis. I loved them deeply, and they were very good to me when I was young. I mean, there was I was sort of, you know, there was so few children that survived yeah. that I had this special kind of, and also the connection with my father and so on. So people were very, sort of, very very kind to me. Hmm. And I loved going to these gatherings, these just normal Friday nights, Saturday night gatherings or afternoons with they would get together and have some tea and they'd talk and whatever and they'd end up reminiscing about basically sometimes about the war. They weren't obsessive about it, um, but they'd talk a lot about the born during their activities and so on. And I loved listening to it. And I, that's how I learned really about the Bund. It wasn't a formal lesson. It wasn't mm. books. It wasn't. It was just listening to them. And there was and sort of the way they approached issues. And even the way they talked about the past. And I think one of the great gifts, I, have, I keep saying this um, whenever I talk to anybody, that I think the Bund gave me, they were not afraid to be critical of Jews. I mean, they criticized very, they were very... Um, open about Jewish problems. Um, they knew that there was an underworld, they knew that there were Jewish gangsters, they knew that there were Jewish pimps, you know, um, and they knew that they wanted to transform it. It wasn't, the Bund wasn't just about wages. Hmm. It was about, I mean, Jews were very poverty-stricken, the majority of Jews. There was a class system, but the, they were mainly concerned with the proletariat, basically, with the, with working class people, and they were in abject poverty. And um, so, I think um, that was like a basis for me that it was okay to be critical of Jews. I mean, they talked openly, for example, about in the ghettos of Jewish policemen. You know, the Germans would recruit Jewish policemen. Very often, they, not very often, most of the time, they themselves ended up dead. In the meantime, it bought them time. And the Jewish policemen, some were known to be, you know, horrible, <clears throat> worst. I mean, so it's like getting, getting the victim to do its own mm. dirty work so that they weren't necessarily there. So, I mean, I heard a lot about that. And um, they weren't afraid to talk about it. They weren't ashamed. They weren't anything. It was just fact. Mm. And so when it came to Israel, I didn't, I didn't have, didn't understand why you just couldn't talk about it. Real quick, just to rewind, you mentioned the boon was more than just about wages; it was about transformation. Yeah. Can you just elaborate transformation? Well, I mean, one of the things about the boon that's really so amazing, you know, when the war broke out in '39, the boon was was um, forty, let's see, forty-two years old. It had been founded in 1897. 
By that time, they had established school system of schools, libraries, theater, sports organizations, and political, you know, it was like an all-encompassing view that the society wasn't just about getting a fair wage or eight hours a day. It was definitely about that. Mm. But it was also about how you led your life. And they were very much concerned about literacy, um, health. They had a very famous, there was a very famous um, sanatorium called the Medem Sanatorium. It was named after Vladimir Medem, who died very young. He was one of the early, early, early Bund leaders. He was an assimilated, baptized Jew from Russia who discovered somehow (laughs) his Jewish self in Bund and learned Yiddish and became a major figure. And he died very young. Um, He died in his early 40s. And so they had this sanatorium named after him. And that was a sanatorium for sick children, for children. And they, they, it was a, it was run by the children. They had councils. I mean, the older children took care of the younger children. It was a, a sense of responsibility to other people, and that you had some, you had a role to play mm-hmm. in um, sort of the way society functioned. Was it con- a vision confined to Jewish communities or? society at large? Well, I think it was first aimed at Jews. Yeah. I mean, that was the first, but there was an international sense mm-hmm. of wanting, there's a film, for example, about the Madame Sanatorium, and in it, they read the news, and so they, the children, every day they've heard international news, so in this one particular thing, okay. she's talking about coal miners in Scotland. Hmm. You know that we have. We're in solidarity. I mean, they're like nine years old in Poland in this sanitarium. We're in solidarity with the you know coal miners, that kind of thing. And um, and they actually the Medem Sanatorium took in non-Jewish Jews. Mm. Um, they took in some refugee children at various points. I mean, the philosophy was that they, they were. It was interesting. It was really. It was a very very famous sanatorium that people from literally around the world would come to for pedagogical reasons because it was so advanced in terms of how they ran it and how the children's function and it was I mean they took kids out of I'm sure this is true like in all kind of urban really you know sort of deprived communities who'd never been outside or never seen you know animals and never you know I mean they didn't have a vocabulary for it and who didn't know how to you know, brush their teeth and didn't know. I mean, it was real squalor. I mean, um, hmm. so yeah. So I think they and they were. You know, they were interested in trying to just transform the society. Yeah. And I mean, it was a very. I didn't see a lot of the contradictions when I was listening to it. It was only me when I started really focusing on it. Um, so, for example, this whole issue of Dolokhite. Right. They felt so betrayed by the Poles during the war. A lot of them refused to speak Polish after the war. Hmm. When they had been so committed yeah, to being to Poland. And they were, my first language and with my mother, and only language with my mother until I started speaking English with her, was Polish. And people were really angry with her because a lot of people just refused after the war to speak the language and they just turned to Yiddish. And she didn't, I'm actually grateful that I I had so many breaks in my childhood that she didn't switch languages on me. Um, But she got a lot of flack for it. 
she loved Polish literature. I mean, she was just, she was very, she was a big reader. And so that was one contradiction, that dog hide, like, excuse me, it's like, yeah, we belong everywhere but Poland. I mean, you know, so there was that. There was the whole contradiction, I think, also of um, their ambivalence, I think, what they wanted from someone like me, whether they wanted me to... Into, you know, what word do you want to use? Assimilate, integrate, you know, become culturally acculturate. <laughs> um, there's different, I mean, assimilation always has such a terrible connotation. Right. But, um, but they, they were very much, um, they certainly didn't want me to be a factory worker. And they, I don't even think they wanted me to be a Yiddish teacher. I think they wanted, you know, my mother. My mother's ambition for me was sort of upwardly mobile in an academic way. I mean, and certainly very solidly middle class and not working class. And everybody I knew in the amalgamated, you had to be in those days. You had to be a member of a union to live there. So uh, the people I knew were construction workers, printers. Um, amalgamate. Amalgamated. It was started by the ILGWU, oh, okay. International Ladies Garment Workers. And um, so most of the women were in the in the um, oh, I see. Okay. piece doing piecework and and you know clothing. Yep. And the men were in a variety of things, like I said, construction, um, printing. I'm trying to think what Vladek did, but they were all working class. But they didn't. Their kids went on to college, and you know. Mm. So would that have happened in Poland if the war hadn't happened? I don't know whether this was, a lot of people think that this was inevitable in some way. Because they were always very like, I mean, if you read about the poems, I mean, they started libraries wherever they went. It was yeah. a library. They wanted people to read. And they, there was an enormous um, business in translating world literature. So, I mean, they translated everything. So they, they, and they translated a lot of the political writers. So they would like Victor Hugo, was you know or like Gorky or somebody like that so they read all of western stuff I mean they were very up on that and they read it in Yiddish so despite I mean they were sort of very very literate in many ways working class um, and, and so their ambitions at least here what their ambitions would have been over there I don't you know yeah. I don't care really foresee but so there were so there were contradictions and of course there was the problem of Israel itself that once it existed mm. and there were also Bundes that ended up in Israel because they couldn't get in anywhere mm. I mean we were in Sweden for three years because we couldn't get in anywhere and um, we only came here because we were on our way to Australia because my mother's two of her siblings survived so they were in Australia, so we were here on a seven-day visa, and um, and then we got a lawyer and and don't put that on the radio. <laughs> given these times, <laughs> so anyway, we we got so. You know, it was. There's a lot of the bond. You can't just take it out of Poland. You know, between the war and just transplant it here. Yeah. And many of them were not political. Um, you know, um, 
So anyway, I sort of, I was not political until I came out. I mean, I had a lot of problems dealing with the war, and I had, I had a, just a lot of issues that I had to deal with being an immigrant. It was very, I hated coming here. Um, I loved Sweden. I loved my school. I loved my friends, and I was snatched out of it and brought here. And in Sweden, where I was the only Jew, I was fine. Here, where I moved into a Jewish neighborhood, I had a lot of problems. It was like, it was, they were not great. It was a working, you know, they were kids. They were bullies. I was kind of, I was very European. My mother dressed me European. I didn't look American. And in Sweden, I think when I look back on it, I think I was, I was still European and they were European. So it wasn't in some ways outwardly all that different. But here was, I had a very hard time here. And, um... So I don't know. I mean, it was it was in. I I didn't. I went to Chicago. Like. I was very fearful. A lot of things when I Chicago. I didn't like Chicago at all. I didn't like the university, but. It was very good for me. It was my first contact with non-Jews, really. Aside from Sweden, which I didn't even remember, you know, in terms of, because here I was just in a kind of Jewish bubble. And I couldn't even, I mean, my best friend in, in, during my Chicago years turned out to be this lapsed Catholic woman, Paula, who was a good friend of mine. And, but that was like the first time I'd really had a non-Jewish friend. I mean, it was sort of incredible. Hmm. Um, I was, what, 23? Yeah. 22. How did coming out kind of catalyze a larger, like, political activism for you? Well, I think I had to deal with some, I mean, a lot of the others quote other politics seemed more distant for me but this was very immediate Hmm. um and uh I didn't consciously want to be political or be um oh I thought that was mine I really I had a very hard time being public Mm. it was very difficult for me I just I was very shy I was frightened. I mean, even in my classes in Chicago, I couldn't, it was very hard for me to talk in class. And it's just that everybody was kind of political. I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, I think the question is more not why did I become political, but how did I become sort of more prominently political outwardly? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, in the sense that people started looking to me in some way or asking me oh, to I be see. the representative okay. Okay. of something. That was very, very difficult for me. Joining things was wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it was supportive. We felt like, you know, when you're in a room with like 10 dykes, you feel like you own the world. I mean, <laughs> you know, you rule the world yeah. and you have total control and there's nobody bad in the room and that kind of thing. But then being told, well, you want to represent these ten women, is and go and speak somewhere. Oh, I see. Is very different. Yep. And I was not a very. Did that did not come easy to me? I mean, it took me years and years. I mean, but I did it. I mean, I was much braver actually in my writing mm. than I was in my. It sort of I lagged behind my writing publicly. I think. And how did that? You're, you've brought up Israel a couple of times. Could you talk a little bit about what it meant to... Israel? Yeah. Oh, Israel. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry well, I always that. thought it... I know this is a terrible... This is going to go on this podcast, but I always thought Israel was the second great tragedy of 
of the 20th century. Hmm. I just and a lot of the stuff that the Bund said would happen happened. Interesting. That, that they would be strangers in that area. They'd be outsiders. That they'd be pitted against the Arabs. Um, all of that happened. Um, I was. Um, I had no problem criticizing Israel. I was just. It wasn't. I can't explain it. It was. It was just very difficult because I was. On the one hand, I was sort of very very visible. I was as a child even. I was very visible in the Holocaust community because of my father. I was always Michal Klefisch's daughter. Mm. Somebody just, in fact, on Facebook, this 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 man I know, it's a Gottesman. He's a Yiddish teacher in Austin, Texas, but he's originally from New York. He just put on Facebook a diploma that he found that his mother kept from his nursery, Yiddish nursery school, which was named after my father. <laughs> and it was up in the Bronx. Uh -huh. And I, I knew about the school, but I'd never seen this kind of diploma. When he got, it was like from 1956, I think. It's much younger than me. And so he was very famous in that community. Yeah. And so I was always really uncomfortable with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I felt a lot of people were pointing at me. And, and I always... When we had memorials, I was always the one that lit the candle for all the children that died. I mean, it was like, it was a nightmare. <laughs> it was a total it's nightmare. a lot of pressure. <laughs> total nightmare. So I was wary of that, but um, I had already had that in that community, and I started having that in the women's community, and they also made me, like when I first wrote my first bio, I didn't say anything about my background, and Ellie Balkin, who was the editor of Lesbian Poetry, said, Irina. <laughs> Could you say like where you were born? <laughs> because that somehow added. I don't know. Yeah. And then I was like, then I became this thing for lesbian, for lesbian daughters of daughters of Holocaust survivors. And I don't know. It was just I constantly became somebody's thing. And um, so it was difficult for me. But at the same time, it was also just physically difficult for me to get up and stand and talk. I mean, um, I could write. I mean, the very first essay I ever wrote, I mean, I was writing poetry all along, but it was about anti-Semitism in, in the lesbian feminist movement. Mm -hmm. But for me to stand up and say that was much more difficult, not because necessarily I was afraid of blowback or anything like that. It was just, I wasn't very, you know, I, it took me a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but I did it. I mean, I did, I felt like I needed to do it if that was useful. Yeah, and very often I was. I mean, I and I complained about it. Very often I was. To, I was a token. Yeah, I was a safe token. Like they could put me up there as a lesbian because I was a Holocaust survivor and I knew Yiddish. And boy, you can't call me anti, you know, self-hating Jew. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, I took on the Israeli, and I really. Um, I knew I'd been to Israel a number of times, and when when Melanie and I did the Tribe of Dina with this anthology, which was supposed to be a complete kind of <clears throat> anthology, and we wanted to have Sephardic women. It wasn't just going to be European based and that kind of thing. And we wanted, we really believed that we should be supporting the Israeli left, which the left here was not supporting. Yeah. One of the big mistakes. They weren't propping it up. They were ashamed of it. I mean, they didn't want to have anything to do with anything Israeli. 
But we felt that there's a left there, there's a resistance there that should be supported. And we went specifically for the anthology to interview women, Jewish women, who are in the resistance, basically, in the sort of resistance camp. Um, a lot of lesbians, it didn't all get into the book, but we did much more. But we did a number of them, and they, they did end up in the anthology. And that was very important, I think, to me, to sort of have that personal contact with them. And then when the first intifada happened in the late 80s, which was like 87, 88, a friend of mine, Lil Moed, came back from, had just come back from Israel, and she said, you know, there are these women who are standing in, in Paris Square in Jerusalem. Um, I think it's called Paris Square, France Square. Anyway, um, they're women in black and they're against the occupation and we should support them. And so then I formed with her, with um, Grace Paley and Claire Kinberg. Claire was editing this Bridges magazine. We formed the Jewish Women's Committee to End the Occupation. And we started standing on the street corner too. <laughs> For, we didn't, couldn't find a place. We went to the Conference of Presidents and then we went somewhere else and couldn't, and then we finally found our a sweet spot in front of Zay bars on the Upper West Side where <laughs> we could get a lot of Jews because we were mainly addressing Jews. Right. And this was really, I mean, it was, it was really hot. I mean, you should have heard what some people said to us. I mean, it was really unbelievable. It was a real education for me. Hmm. Um, and I mean, they told us we should have died in the ovens and, you know, just horrible stuff. From Jews. For, yeah, uh, yeah. And then they told us self-hating and this and that I mean it was just but that was like at that point as that was almost sometimes physically terrifying because they were really hostile yeah. um, but it, it was slow I mean it was a it was a process for me I mean it was it was, it was difficult but you know it's funny because last night I was at Carnegie Hall they had this big event and I was terrified to get on stage. Now, I've done endless <laughs> readings. I mean, I just don't even blink. I mean, I, you know, I can barely, I don't even barely need to prepare to do it. But going into Carnegie Hall was, <laughs> standing on that stage was terrifying. And that's what I used to experience all the time when yeah. I first started. I mean, this incredible thing about being so public. Um, but I did it. I mean, I did my writing and I did that. And, um, Depending on the audience, um, it's comfortable or not comfortable. I don't know. So it's interesting. You've the beginning of the story almost starts with you being forced to speak on behalf of right. all these things. How did, and now, in some ways, if you look at the, the legacy of your work, you have done a lot of speaking yeah. and writing on behalf. How have you come to take ownership over this in a way that makes it sort of authentic to you instead of something yeah. that expectation of other people? I have to be really careful about it. I mean, yeah. I have to think. And also, you know, as you get older, I realize I'm often the oldest person in the room and sort of you know, the kind of deference also to old age <laughs> to some degree. Um, but um, I, have to, I have to really watch it. I mean, and um, for the most part, I'm very careful about what I accept. Yeah. And under, like, I won't. I've refused to do basically Holocaust talks. Mm. I get a lot of invitations usually. 
Yeah. Some people want me to come there. I just won't do it. Um, because I feel it's too... I can't turn it into a thing. I just can't do it. Like a spiel. Yeah, I, I just can't do it. And I don't want to get paid for it. And I don't want to, you know, like, yeah. it's sort of... So I'm that kind of thing. I mean, um, I'm really careful about... I Like, I, I did a talk for the first time in a very, very long time. Um, partly because Judy had been so sick and my mother was sick. I had, and I was trying to teach, so I didn't do anything for a number of years. But I, I got invited to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor to do their complete department, had a con- was having a conference, and I liked the subject. It was about silence, so I liked. I thought it was a great topic. I thought I, this is something I think about anyway. So, mm-hmm. so I'm careful, I yeah. mean, and I have to. Um, and I think as you get older, also now I'm extremely careful about um, what I accept, partly because I don't want to be distracted from work I really want to do and I don't feel like I'm 50 and I have eight you know 30 years ahead of me so I'm, I'm careful about my time yeah um but it's it was a struggle and I stay away from I could I got finally really at the beginning I was very naive I think I I I was I'm able to detect I think when people are kind of trying to use me in a certain way mm. um and I think I didn't know how I couldn't do that at the beginning so that I'm, I'm rarely in really uncomfortable positions. What work do you feel like you want to focus on now? I have a lot of work about, um, I'm really interested in why people turn on each other. I mean, yeah. I'm really interested in that. People that, these sort of irreconcilable, con- seemingly irreconcilable conflicts. So I want to look at that. And, I mean, now, especially now, like, even in Poland now, there's so much, there's a real rise of anti-Semitism now throughout Europe. It's very strong in Poland now. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, I've had a number of friends who sort of come with a little bit of my background who say the same thing I do, which is, I'm glad my mother isn't living through this because I'd be so, yeah. she'd be so upset. Yeah. And I mean, I'm upset, but it's, it's very painful. And I've made some alliances <clears throat> recently in Poland, and I'm going to be going back for a month. Oh. I was there two years ago for a month, and now I'm going back, and it's it's very similar to what's happening here, but it's smaller, so it impacts them quickly. You know, we don't get them, you know, everything's so spread out. Certain places feel it, certain people feel it. Over there, everybody, it's like, it's so small, and they're very Trump-oriented now, the government. Mm. They're going to name a base after him, a military base. Yeah, yeah, they live in... Do, maybe <clears throat> very last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've had a number of friends or classmates who have taken a revived interest in Yiddish, and I think in general it's kind of a resurgence of, like, Jewish socialism, interest in that, and Yiddish and all that sort of stuff. And it seems to be tied also with, like, a growing... L- you know, Jewish left on Israel, at least here in America. Could you comment a little bit on this kind of trend of renewed interest, if you agree that it is a trend? I think there is a trend. <clears throat> I think there is a trend. Um, and who knows? I mean, this, this was part of my silence talk also <laughs> about where is... Because ever since I can remember, everybody's... The question, like, beginning, even in the 70s, the question is, is Yiddish dead? Is it not dead? Is it reviving? Is Hasn't it uh, died yet. Is it, yeah, is it, is it in the ICU? Is it on life support? What's going on with Yiddish? So, and 
there's clearly something going on with Yiddish. And now I think there are a lot of reasons for it. I mean, I think that one reason is the whole issue around Israel, that people are looking back to that period before Israel. What were the questions that could be asked and what were the choices that Jews had? And I think the Bund's analysis is something that's very, that you could be, you know, now very often, maybe it's getting better, I don't know. Um, if you're if you're not a Zionist, you're self-hating in some way. If you're right. not a full supporter of Israel, or something. so I think looking back to the Bund is not self-hating. Right. Not, you know, there's very, a Jewish heritage. Yeah, right. and it's affirmative and so on. So that's one thing. Yeah. I think there's also I think there's a large queer element in, in hmm, the Jewish community too, yeah. because I think. You know, Yiddish was always kind of suspect. It wasn't a real language and this, and it was always yeah. sort of, and I think there's something about that rebelliousness, about it, insisting mm. on reclaim, you know how you reclaimed the word dyke, right. you know? I think there's something about that. I don't know how, how to pinpoint it. A sort of in-your-face <laughs> kind of, I'm gonna, you think we're low? We're going to get lower, you know, <laughs> you yeah. know uh, that kind of thing. And so I think there's an element of that in it. Though I think there's also a trend now that I think is, is um, to me, kind of upsetting because hmm. I didn't talk a lot about this. We didn't talk about secularism at all. Hmm. And That's the secular true. element, I mean, I didn't go, I had never stepped into a synagogue until I was in my 40s. Hmm. Right. And we observed certain holidays, and I went to a Yiddish show, but we observed them in a totally like political, historical way. Passover was political, Purim was political. I never, we never did, we never did anything on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I mean, it was like a, it was alien to me until I became active, and I had to really learn it. I didn't know nothing about religion, so I think there's that as well because I think people are caught between Israel and observance and Holocaust, uh, and it's not a Holocaust either. Right, right, right. So I think there's a number of attractions. Now, right now, there is more of a religious element in the movement, and it always bothers me somewhat because mm. I'm afraid that it's gonna, in some way, eventually, because it wasn't a religious movement. It was totally, it was a committed secular. One of the, um, in that Bund book, if you look, there's an advertisement for a, uh, to parents saying there's a meeting about a school, and a Yiddish school, and it's written in both Yiddish and Polish, and they, when do they have the meeting? They have it on Saturday. It's like in your face, <laughs> you know. And so, just they expect secular parents to be able to come on a Sabbath. You know. Why is the commitment to secularism important for you beyond historical continuity? It's not. A, it's. Oh. I'm just not a believer. So, I mean, okay. I'm not a. I wasn't. I don't have it in me. I'm not. People always tell me I'm so. I'm really spiritual, and I don't really know. But I mean, I, I but it's not true. I mean, yeah, I appreciate beauty and nature and everything like that. I don't think you have to be religious in order to do that. Um, I just don't believe it. But I do believe in a historical Jewish people, and I and I'm certainly, you know, um, I'm, I don't feel like I'm hostile. I mean, I get ups, I'm upset about a lot of feminist stuff issues that are, that go along with with um, orthodoxy. I mean, I can't stand the fact that they won't photograph Hillary, leave Hillary Clinton in a photograph. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you, there was that famous photograph when they killed bin Laden. Oh, okay. And she was the only woman in the room, and the Hasidim did a picture, there was that photograph of them oh. all sitting, and the Hasidim took her out of the picture in their newspapers. I mean, it's, I, 
makes me <laughs> enrages me. <laughs> So, I mean, that's just a mild form of a, of a kind of yeah. sexism and patriarchy that just drives me crazy. Um, on the other hand, you know, when I taught at Barnard, I had a lot of observant young yeah, women. Is, and, yeah, um, and, orthodox. Yeah, and I have to say, I had a, a lot of respect for them for coming into these classrooms, and whatever we were talking about, they were facing at home, mm. you know, and they were dealing with it somehow. So I, I, really, I really admired them um, in some way. But it's, um, I think the secular point is really, really important uh, for people who are not observant because also, I mean, I, I also know that I had, I've encountered lots of people who say you can't be Jewish unless you're observant. Mm. You know, you have to believe, I'm an atheist, I was always raised, I was raised as an atheist, I believe, I, I don't even question it. It's not anything, um, I wish there was an afterlife, but... Why? I don't know that there is one. <laughs> um, I believe that there isn't one. So, yeah, I think I think it has. I think the whole Yiddish thing has is a conglomerate of various issues that draw people for for a number of reasons, and they sort of are all together in it. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me, Irina. Thank you. And that was Irina Klepfitz, a Jewish writer, activist, and Yiddishist. I was, yeah, really struck by her reflections on how modern and contemporary Jews are looking to f- find uh, who are on the who are sort of leftists in their politics, especially with regards to Israel, looking to find some sort of heritage that is truly Jewish and thoroughly self-affirming, identity-affirming, but that has a different set of politics compared to c- kind of the options available today. So. And I think it's a it's an impulse that I see in a lot of my peers and I think in, the, in myself to be able to say like, you know, as much as we want to think of ourselves as breaking new ground, there's an impulse we have to want to find a lineage um, in what we do to feel like, you know, we are connected to something larger or part of something, a community that we aren't necessarily betraying our um, ancestors or parents or what have you in doing what we're doing. So I'm going to post um, pictures of the book that she mentioned, the, the chronology of the Jewish labor boond on, for our Patreon. Thank you so much for our newest Patreon supporters, Suan Shah and Joseph Engelhardt. Really appreciate your support. Actually, Suan's a friend. Um, but I think hopefully that will give you some more visual um, aids and clues as to the things that Irina and later on Dana will reference. So thank you so much for listening. This is the Religion and Social Religion and Socialism, a production of the Democratic Socials of America. It was produced by Devin Brisky. I'm Sarah New. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon, and we are part of a larger working group that has a blog that's very active. It's religioussocialism.org. Please contact us through the website if you want to join or start our religious socialism working group. And thank you all so much for your support.